The title of tonight's talk is The Nature of Thought. Um, I'd like to begin with a reading from a great Dharma author, um, Dave Barry. Does anybody read Dave Barry? Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with Dave Barry, you could say he was a humorous social commentator. And I'm reading from a book that he's published called Dave Barry's Guide to Guys. And it's from chapter four called Tips for Women. How to have a relationship with a guy. I'm going to read a few pages. Contrary to what many women believe, it's fairly easy to develop a long-term, stable, intimate, and mutually fulfilling relationship with a guy. Of course, this guy has to be a Labrador retriever. With humans and guys, it's extremely difficult. This is because guys don't really grasp what women mean by the term relationship. Let's say a guy named Roger is attracted to a woman named Elaine. He asks her out to a movie. She accepts. They have a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out to dinner. And again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly, and after a while, neither one of them is seeing anyone else. And then, one evening, when they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine. And without really thinking... She says it out loud. Do you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there is silence in the car. (laughs) To Elaine, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, geez, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger is thinking, gosh, six months. And Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had more space, so I'd have time to think about whether I really want to keep things going the way they are, moving steadily toward, I mean, what? where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? Are we heading towards marriage? towards children, towards a lifetime together? Am I really ready for that level of commitment? Do I really even know this person? And Roger is thinking. So that means it was, let's see, February when we started going out. (laughs) Which was right after I had the car at the dealers. Which means... Let me check the odometer. Whoa, I'm way overdue for an oil change. And Elaine is thinking he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he really wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he has sensed, even before I sensed it, that I was feeling some reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his own feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Roger is thinking, and I'm going to have them look at the transmission again. (laughs) 
I don't care what those morons say, this is still not shifting right, and they better not try to blame it on the cold weather this time. What cold weather? It's 87 degrees out, and this thing is shifting like a goddamn garbage truck. And I paid those incompetent, thieving, cretin bastards $600, and Elaine is thinking he's angry. (laughs) And I don't blame him. I'd be angry, too. God, I feel so guilty putting him through this. But I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. And Roger is thinking. They'll probably say it's a 90-day warranty. That's exactly what they'll say, those scumballs. And Elaine is thinking, maybe I'm just too idealistic, waiting for a knight to, to come riding up on his white horse. When I'm sitting here next to a perfectly good person, a person I really enjoy being with, a person I truly care about, a person who seems to truly care about me, a person who is in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Roger is thinking, warranty? They want a warranty. I'll give them a goddamn warranty. I'll take their warranty and stick it right up there. Roger, Elaine says out loud. What? Says Roger, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says, her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe I should never have. Oh, God, I feel so. And then she breaks down sobbing. What? Roger says. I'm such a fool, Elaine sobs. I mean, I know there's no night. I really know that. It's silly. There's no night. There's no horse. There's no horse, Roger says. You think I'm a fool, don't you? Elaine says. No, Roger says, glad to finally know the correct answer. (laughs) It's just that... It's that I need some time, Elaine says. There is a 15-second pause while Roger, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response. Finally, he comes up with one that he thinks might work. Yes, he says. (laughs) Elaine, deeply moved, reaches over and touches his hand. Oh, Roger, do you really feel that way, she says. What way, says Roger. (laughs) That way, about time, says Elaine. Oh, says Roger, yes. Elaine turns to him and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous about what she might say next, especially if it involves a horse. (laughs) At last, she speaks. Thank you, Roger, she says. Thank you, says Roger. Then he takes her home and she lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps until dawn. Whereas when Roger gets back to his place, he opens a bag of Doritos, turns on the TV, and immediately becomes deeply involved in a rerun of a tennis match between two Czechoslovakians he has never heard of. A tiny voice in the far recesses of his mind tells him that something major was going on back in the car, but he was pretty sure there is no way he would ever understand what... So he figures it's better if he doesn't think about it. This is also Roger's policy regarding world hunger. (laughs) The next day, Elaine will call her closest friend, or perhaps two of them, and they will talk about the situation for six straight hours. (laughs) In painstaking detail, they will analyze everything she said and everything he said, going over it time and again, exploring every word, expression, and gesture for nuances of meaning, considering every possible ramification. They will continue to discuss this subject off and on for weeks, maybe months. 
never reaching any definite conclusion, but never getting bored with it either. (laughs) Meanwhile, Roger, while playing racquetball one day with a mutual friend of his and Elaine's, will pause just before serving, frown, and say, Norm, did Elaine ever own a horse? (laughs) It goes on, but I think we'll stop there. Very often we live in the stories that we devise. Unfortunately, sometimes quite disconnected from what might actually be happening in the real world or with the very people that we're sitting with. Our thoughts don't always serve us. Sometimes they run on automatic, rather out of control. And too often they're not even the thoughts that we would want to think. Very often that they're the thoughts that we don't actually want to be experiencing. There's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, which basically is images of, of Calvin thinking and kind of having different quizzical expressions as he's contemplating. And Calvin is contemplating and thinking out loud to himself. And the caption says, Here I am, happy and content. Then he has another thought but not euphoric. Then the next frame, he's looking a little bit disturbed. Now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. And then in the last picture, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. (laughs) Often in meditation interviews, people come and speak with me about difficulty that they have with their own thoughts very often experiencing the pain of obsessive thinking, thinking about past conditions, about past relationships, about past events over and over and over again. I was in one um, group interview on a retreat, and the Vipassana, and, and, a, and a woman was describing this obsessive thinking regarding a past relationship. And I heard this teacher speaking with her, And what he said was, very simply, this is the most useless activity you could possibly engage in. It's a complete waste of time. And there is some truth in this. Sometimes we use our thoughts in ways that are not useful, that don't actually serve us. We let them spin out of control, to be spinning and circling around past obsessions or future anxieties. There's a a verse in the Bible where Jesus said, Take no thought for the morrow, For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. And a newer translation of that same verse says, Don't be anxious about tomorrow. So much anxiety is simply the neurotic obsession that we have with thinking. When we let our thoughts spin out of control, projecting pain from the past onto every future experience, fearing that it will continue. Sometimes we don't allow our minds to rest. We can find rest in the present moment, rest 
in the experience of breathing, coming into a sense of being mindful in our bodies so that we're not always so lost in thoughts about past or future. Obsessions with the past and anxiety about the future exhausts the mind. One of my Tibetan lamas said, has a a poem, um, Nyoshoken Rinpoche. He wrote, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in an infinite ocean of samsara. We need to allow our weary minds to rest. Sometimes we can find that rest by coming into presence, by simply experiencing the body as it is, whether painful or pleasant, just feeling it as it is. Perhaps we can find rest by settling in with the rhythm of breathing, knowing a long breath is a long breath and a short breath is a short breath. Perhaps we might find the rest in that gap between two thoughts and in that quietness between the ending of one thought and before the arising of the next. Rest in that peace. Drink, taste of that happiness, that ease. Punjaji, my guru in India, often spoke about how thought He used the analogy of thought, taking you to the supermarket. Sometimes there are things you have to do in the world. There are things you have to go out and shop for and buy. But we don't live in the supermarket of thought. We don't need to always be in thought. He would encourage students to follow the thought back to where from where it came to find the source of the thought. And that's where we'll find our true home where we can rest. Sometimes we can follow the thought back in the formality of the meditation practice, inquiring into the source of thought, tracing it back to its source. Sometimes the experience of no thought arises rather spontaneously. Perhaps we're on a long trip looking out the window and we simply recognize that quietude of mind, that absence of thought, that space between thought. And we feel the quality of mind utterly free from preoccupation, completely present, free from past obsessions and free from future anxieties. The experience of no thought is a place for wonder, for awe, It's the place in which we can explore a non-discursive form of inquiry. There, when thought is not arising, before the next thought returns, we are present and we look into that experience. We might even ask, what is the source of thought? And stay present, diligent to notice Where does the next thought arise? So that we don't come in at the end of the thought, deeply involved in the obsession, in the storyline, but we can sometimes experience the very arising of thought 
and be curious, from where does it arise? Or the very ending of the thought, to where does it vanish? We want to know, to understand the nature of thought, how it arises, how it vanishes, what it is, what its nature is. We want to understand thought without grasping a conclusion about thought. And then perhaps another thought arises. There's a next thought that simply arises in the silence of mind. And for a moment, the mind may return to that discursive pattern, perhaps an obsessive pattern, or perhaps just the simple duality of thinking, of conceptualizing experience, of conceiving of things in predictable ways. But can we still be curious and then ask again in the midst of a thought, what is this? What is a thought? so that we again trace the thought back to its source, inquire, take the opportunity for investigation. How do we get entranced and absorbed in a thought? What is the difference between the experience of a thought and the content of the thought? Why are stories that we repeat so fascinating? What seduces us about our familiar patterns? What seduces us about our favorite themes? How do we relate to those thoughts so that we go with them, get pulled into them? Why, how is it that we live so many moments of a day involved in thinking and yet so rarely investigate what a thought is? So much of our lives is spent lost in thought, seduced into the storyline, preoccupied with the content level. But we forget that we can also look beyond the content. We can let go of the narrative and look into the thought itself, that energetic movement of mind, that impulse. Too much of our lives is spent preoccupied with thinking, compulsive planning for the future, or ruminating over the past. What is causing that those thoughts to arise? What is sustaining the thinking? What is its nature? Is that who we are? Quite a bit of afflictive emotions arise due to the way that we think. When we ruminate on past events, we can spin ourselves into depression. When we obsessively fear or plan future events, we can spin ourselves into anxiety or panic states. But what is a thought and how are we relating to those thoughts that arise? How do we get from the simple experience of that movement of energy in the mind, an empty thought arising in the silence of mind, into 
a grasping of that thought, into believing the thought, into believing that it's saying something real about us. How do we get identified with thought? This is an important investigation in practice so that we see into the nature of thought and investigate our relationship to that process. Classically, thoughts generally revolve around one of four categories. These are the four kinds of attachment or the four kinds of clinging. How many people here know the four kinds of clinging? A few, okay. So you can't answer. (laughs) Now, somebody might know one. What's one kind of attachment that you have? Mind stuff thoughts. What kinds of mind stuff? Anything? Self concerns. Self concerns. Okay, great. Yes. One form of one of the four is the concept of self, self interest. What else? What else do you grasp? What else do you cling? Sensual pleasures. pleasures. Exactly. That's another kind. So we've got self concept and sensual pleasures. Two more. See all these lists. If you think about them, you can actually figure them out because. They're not conceptual. They relate to our experience. What else do you grasp? What else do you cling? Fear. 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 Um, yeah, actually, we can grasp fear, but that would come into a, uh, come into another category. Yeah. Yeah. What else? People what? I can. Uh, other people, yes. Very often in that we're actually grasping the desire for the contact, the pleasure. But we also can grasp a lot in the thing in, in our relationships with people. The four classic kinds of areas for attachment is sense pleasure, attachment to views and opinions, attachment to rites and rituals or ways of doing things, methods and techniques an attachment to the concept of self. And most of the things that we find that we grasp can kind of be filtered out into these categories. So grasping pleasure is the, I want it. I'll feel better if I get it. Whether it's a thing, a taste, a bite of pie, a relationship, an intellectual pleasure or even a meditative pleasure of calmness. It's the movement, I want it. Views and opinions is more grasping what I believe. My thoughts, my views, my notions, my ideas, how I think things should be. It should be like this. The methods and techniques grasping rites and rituals, ways of doing things, is grasping our own patterns of energy, how something is done. It should be done this way. We can grasp methods and techniques in our own meditation practice when we are attached to the patterns of our own effort. I will try this way. The strategies, if you find yourself planning how to do something, strategizing, trying to figure it out. 
you might be involved in this form of grasping. And then the fourth, of course, is the concept of self. Basically, obsessive thoughts are fueled by clinging, an attachment, a desire of movement towards conceptual fixation. So we observe not just the content of the thought, we look into the contraction of clinging to the thought because we don't need to get rid of the thought. The place that we let go is we let go of the contraction. We alter our relationship to the arising of thought. We release. We don't release the thought. We release the grasping of the thought. We release the clinging. We release that contraction when a thought arises, and then we rest in that space between thoughts. As our mindfulness increases and becomes more subtle, we start to see the patterns that influence our reactions. We see the way that intentions arise, how perception occurs, how certain experiences lead to certain thoughts that lead to certain actions and then condition certain reactions. How it is that self arises in that process of perceiving, reacting, responding, and thinking. Through meditation, we don't control our experiences, and yet profound shifts occur right on the threshold of rational understanding. We don't reject the mind that understands, the mind that has the capacity to analyze, the rational mind. And yet, the rational mind is not going to take us from delusion to realization. The rational mind will not make this leap from what's familiar and conditioned to the unconditioned. But the rational mind is also not a hindrance on this process. It is just the mind being rational. It's the capacity and the beauty of the mind to understand. And yet we can also understand the limitations of understanding, the limitations of a rational mind. When we know what is what, when we know things as they are, We don't need to drag the rational mind into every experience. We use it when it's needed, but we're not a slave of rationality. We don't need to figure out and conceptualize everything. There are ways of inquiring and knowing that is beyond the patterns of the discursive mind. Mind can understand no mind. I'm sorry. Mind, the conceptual mind doesn't understand no mind. And yet, the conceptual mind doesn't prevent the realization of what's beyond concept. Dujam Rinpoche, a Tibetan lama, said, Awareness is so open and spacious that there's always room for thoughts to arise. (coughs) 
We don't need to fear thoughts when we can connect with the space between thoughts, when we can connect with a mind that is stable between thoughts. Sometimes we might realize a freedom that is startling, that's quite shocking, a kind of sudden realization where suddenly we open to that quiet absence of preoccupation. And in that quiet absence of preoccupation, there's a reorientation to things, a quality of understanding where we would say, we know, we understand. And yet, it may not be something that we could say that we figured out. It's more like we were present as the truth of things, the nature of things was naturally revealed. We were open to the unfolding of the Dhamma in life. One of the four foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation, is bringing mindfulness to the process of mind, of thoughts forming and mental states. This is an important area to bring mindfulness to because as we bring our mindfulness to mental phenomena, whether that be our emotional life, which I spoke about last week, or the nature of thought, or the pattern of conditioned thought, we have the opportunity to know it as it is, to know a thought as a thought. As we explore the nature of thought, we do so both on a conventional level, on a conceptual level, to understand the conditioned patterns. This is very skillful so that we can understand the conditioned patterns. We can see how certain things trigger certain patterns of mind and actually shift those patterns into more skillful approaches for thought. But we can also know that this is a conceptual and conditioned approach. There is another way of recognizing, a way of looking directly, seeing clearly, experiencing profoundly, that is non-conceptual. When we directly encounter the emptiness, the non-essence, the illusory nature of things, the emptiness of thoughts, then there is no movement of grasping those thoughts that arise. They're simply empty thoughts. They don't hook us into identification with them. They don't seduce us into their train of thinking. When we see the emptiness of thought itself, when we connect and intimately experience the nature of thought, why resist a thought? Why fear a thought? Why grasp a thought? That movement of pushing some away and grasping onto others, of wanting some and not wanting others, of reorganizing the conditioned level of experience, has a lot to do with the habitual pull of desire and aversion. 
But desire and aversion make absolutely no sense in the luminous clarity of an empty mind. When we follow the thought back to where it arose, not back in time, not in our memory, not in the conceptual mind, not outside the mind. We follow it back to find the source of thought. What happens when we truly exhaust all the places where we might find thought? Not in mind, not in location, not in form, not in time. All those are concepts. What is left when we've exhausted all concepts? When we no longer look to the realm of concepts to discover the truth of things. There we might find rest. May not be an answer. It may be an ah, a moment of release, a moment of relaxation. And my Lama Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who um, wrote that poem I read earlier, Rest in Natural Great Peace, This Exhausted Mind, Beaten Helpless by Karma and Neurotic Thought, Like the Relentless Fury of the Pounding Waves on the Infinite Ocean of Samsara. Often he would give me the instruction, just he'd throw his arms back and he would say, just relax. Ah! And if there wasn't a translator around, he would just sit, go like this. Ah. <laughs> I think I'll leave it on. Allow this space to open that's beyond concept. Allow yourself sometimes to look beyond that realm. I'd like to do a guided meditation for some minutes. So let's sit. As you sit, let the mind relax. Just really let the mind relax. Whatever it's holding, just let it go. Drop out of the conceptual realm. And just rest in presence. Connect with the vitality of being. Sometimes we can associate rest with a kind of dullness. Find a quality of rest and ease. Relaxing the mind, but sharpen the attention a bit. 
have the intention to see clearly within a relaxed and open space of mind. Into this relaxed but clear space of mind, I would like you to invite your favorite obsessive thought. If you've been worrying about something or planning something, or something has been circling in your mind, just choose one obsessive pattern one current theme, and dwell on it. Directly observe this obsessive thought. What happens to it as you observe it? If it disappears when you observe it, just bring it back. Just for the point of the exercise, just bring it back. Keep giving rise to the same thought and observing it. Observe how that thought affects your body, affects your emotions. Is there a movement toward it, a sense of pleasure, a movement away, a sense of pain? Does it trigger any particular feelings? What about the thought hooks you? If the thought vanishes, for the purpose of this exercise, give rise to the thought itself again.
Does the thought come from inside the body or outside the body? Does thought have color? Does it have shape? Does it have a location? Where do you find it? Give rise to another thought and notice its source. What do you have to do to give rise to a thought? What effort do you have to make for a thought to be sustained? Where does the thought go? How does it vanish? Where does one thought end and the next begin? Look directly into thinking with awareness. Now let the thoughts go. No need to sustain them or hold on to them. Let the mind rest. And just wait with clear awareness for the next thought to arise. Notice it arising and passing and rest again with clear awareness. allowing the mind to be open and spacious 
so that thoughts can arise and pass without disturbing the ease of mind. Thoughts can arise and pass like lights twinkling in a night sky or birds flying through an open expanse. May all beings live in peace and in harmony. May all beings realize the nature of mind. May all beings be liberated and live in joy. May there be peace. I didn't leave any time for questions or comments, but I will stay a few minutes for anyone who wants to come up and speak to me. I want to thank you for coming, and um, thanks. Many of you have been coming for each of the sessions for this series. It's good to see you, and um, I wish you well.